Shalom. This is Gary Durashinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. Okay, so in the book of Hebrews, you know, this is what the writer's concerned with, that we would move forward in our walk and in our uh, following of Messiah. To do that, he begins the book by telling us that the Lord is speaking. And we sang about that this morning, how the Lord speaks to us. And in the past, in various ways and at different times, he spoke through the prophetic voices of his prophets and teachers among Israel. But he said, but in these last days, and that phrase, I can't help but continue to reiterate, is a phrase that means in the time of Messiah, in these last days, in the time of Messiah's coming, he speaks to us through his son, who is the Messiah of Israel. From the writer's point of view, once the Messiah comes with respect to his first coming, the Messianic age has begun. Remember, the Messiah has two phases of ministry. His redemptive phase and his reigning phase. His first coming and his second coming. He fulfilled all those passages that dealt with his first coming. His redemptive ministry. And so from the writer's point of view, we have entered the messianic era. Not the full messianic era, for there's another ministry he must perform. But his beginning ministry has already begun and, by this writer's time, has been completed. For he had experienced his death, burial, resurrection, ascension to the right hand of the Father. We now await the completion of his ministry when he will return and establish his kingdom on earth. But make no mistake about it, we are in the era of Messiah. Therefore, we go to our people. I'm speaking of the Jewish people particularly, but not exclusively. We go to our people and we tell them it is time to embrace him as your Savior and Lord. Why? Because the Messianic era has come. You know as well as I do that we oftentimes speak to our Jewish friends and they say, you believe Messiah has come, we're waiting for him to come. We need to reiterate, no, 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 the Messianic era has begun. He has already come and he's provided what we are in need of in order that we might be joined to him, in order that we might be forgiven of our sin, cleansed of our sin and united to him as one body in Messiah. That has begun. And so the writer says, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So if it has been important to have listened to the words of the prophets, the words of Moses, how much more so is it important for us to listen to the words of Yeshua, our Messiah? That's what the writer wants us to remember. And what did Yeshua tell his readers? 
He told them that when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, know that its desolation is nigh, flee to the mountains. He wants to make sure that his raiders will obey Yeshua and flee to the mountains, for otherwise they will get caught up in the judgment that will strike in 70 AD. The indication that they are followers of Messiah sold out to him is that they will flee to the mountains, abandon their people, and find that what God had told them through Yeshua is true. That's why from that point on in 70 AD, when the Jewish believers did listen to the writer of the Hebrews, did listen to Messiah, they fled to the mountains, and from that time to the present, Jewish people are referred to, that believe in Yeshua, as Meshumadim, traitors. So no matter how much we might love our people, we have to remember there's always going to be sort of an extended arm against us, a resistant to us, Because in 70 AD, we have been looked at as traitors to our people. But what the writer is saying is it's more important to be responsive to Messiah than to feel the pressure of your own people and your community. Sometimes you need to step out from one's people and one's community. And that happens with all Jewish people that come to know Yeshua as Messiah. And it happens to all people who are in a community where Yeshua is not accepted as Messiah. We have to stand up, stand apart, and experience whatever rejection we might experience because Yeshua is that much more important to us. And so I'll never forget when I invited the Lord into my life and I was so excited and I shared with my parents, first thing my father said is, listen, Don't bring any of your Christian friends here to my home. Don't bring any of their Christian pamphlets. Don't bring any of their books. And this time next year when you graduate high school, if you still believe in Yeshua, you better find another place to live because you're not staying in my home. And that is not an exception. That is oftentimes the case for many Jewish people who come to know Yeshua as Messiah. But God takes care of his people. And so the writer to the Hebrews is telling them, listen, your people are going to say you're traitors for leaving the ranks when the Romans are attacking, but you need to listen to Yeshua more than your own countrymen, your own people. The writer to the Hebrews wants them to go on into maturity. We struggle with similar things. Sometimes members in our own family, people we work with, want us to cheat, want us to lie, want us to do things that we shouldn't do in the workplace in our homes, in our families, sometimes as students in the classroom, whatever it might be. We need to stand apart from those that uh, we might be seen as traitors to and go on in our faith in Messiah and live as unto him. He tells them that we need to listen to Yeshua because, among other things, he's greater than the angels. Of course, the writer is concerned about three important, great Uh, elements in Jewish thought, the angels, Moses, and Aaron, the high priest. But he wants to point out that Yeshua is greater than these three. Remember, the angels mediated the law to Moses. The writer to the Hebrews will mention that. Stephen mentions that in his statement as he gives testimony in Acts chapter 7. And Paul, I think it is, makes reference to it as well in Acts chapter 13. In Deuteronomy 32 and 33, it says that when Moses went up to the mountains, he had received the law in a community of holy ones. And most understand that to be a reference to the angels. So the writer's going to say, as important as the angels are in mediating the law, Yeshua is greater than the angels. He's the one who fulfills the law. 
And as great as Moses is who received the law, Yeshua is greater than Moses. And as great as Aaron was as one who is given the authority to be the high priest on the basis of the law, Yeshua is greater than him. All these things have something to do with relevance to the law, as you can hear. That's why he talks about the angels, Moses, and Aaron. The angels gave the law, Moses taught the law, and Aaron was given his authority on the basis of the law. And what the writer to the Hebrews is going to say is that that Messiah is greater than all three. And in fact, he is so great, the law had to be changed in order for him to serve as high priest. We'll see that in chapter 7 or 8 or so. It's a really interesting passage. But when he tells us that Yeshua is greater than the angels in chapter 1, he said he's greater because he is God come in the flesh. And so he says, when he comes a second time, let all the angels worship him as one example to show that he is God come in the flesh. He quotes Psalm, I think it is 45 or so, in which he says, Oh God, thou God. And so the question is, who, what, or how do I say it? Uh, what God does God have as a God? Because that's what it says in the Psalm. Oh God, your God, it says. And he quotes that passage. It's really strange kind of statements that are made in the scriptures that signify the uniqueness of Messiah. He's greater than the angels because he's God come in the flesh. The second part that we saw, he's greater than the angels, not only because he's God, but because he is mankind as well. He added to his divine nature a human nature. And he's greater than the angels with respect to his humanity because as one who is man, he provides redemption for all of the universe or for all of mankind. Now when we get to this third point, he wants to say he's greater than the angels, not only because he is God, not only because he's greater than them with respect to his humanity, but he's greater than the angels because of the kind of service he provides. Take a look, for example, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. He says in verse 14 about the angels, they, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? The angels serve those who experience the saving grace of God. That's what he says here. Are they not ministering spirits sent out to serve those who will inherit salvation? Yes, is the answer to that question. Yes, they are. But in the section I want us to look at in chapter 2, verses 10 through 18, he says Messiah's service is greater because he provides the salvation that they are to minister unto the people. In other words, they're ministering what he provides. Therefore, the one who provides is greater than the one who ministers the things that are provided. Does that make sense? Yes. So the angels are sent to minister to those who inherit salvation, but it's the Son who is the one who provides the salvation that they will inherit. And this is what he tells us. Look at verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now that little word at the beginning, for, is a critical word. It asks us to ask the question with regard to what? In other words, because of what was it fitting that for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory perfected that one through suffering? He wants us to look back 
to the previous verse. So if you look at verse 9, it says, But we see him, that is Messiah, the Son, who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Why was he made a little lower than the angels? He tells us, so that he might suffer death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So he's talking about the death of Messiah. He's talking about how in his humanity, Yeshua is greater than the angels because he endured death in order that we might have life. And so because of this death, look now at verse 10, because of this, it was fitting that he, he's talking about the father, it was fitting that the father for whom and by whom all things exist, everything exists for the father, that the father would bring many sons to glory. That phrase alone is one of the most wonderful phrases in all the Bible. That God would bring many individuals into a relationship with him whereby they become his sons. And that we are glorified. That's what he's saying. He's going to bring many sons into glory. He doesn't just mean many sons to heaven but he's going to glorify those who embrace his son and have inherited salvation. That's what God's intention is for each and every one of you, and myself included. To bring you into a glorified state of being. That will happen when we are in his presence forever. It's already happening. He's already transforming you from glory to glory. He's already transforming you into the image of his son. God's intention is to make us glorious people. Isn't that amazing? To take we who are dead in trespasses and sin, we who experience the great pain because of our sinfulness, we who experience great shame, as Edward's song had said, he's going to glorify us fully and completely. This was the father's desire from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. He created Adam and Eve, and Eve with great glory. He entrusted to them all of the creation God had created. And because of their sin, they had given it over to the evil one. They lost that glory and inherited in its place death. Because in the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, dying you shall die. And yet, what was God's intention? Despite our actions, he would set in motion a means by which he would bring us into a place of glory as he had intended from the beginning. And I would dare say even greater than what he may have intended from the beginning. The glory that we will experience will be greater than the glory that Adam and Eve had in the garden. And this was God's intention. That is why his son died, is what the writer is saying. Now, check this out. Not only does he say that, but he says, and he should make the founder of their salvation. Some translations say the author. Some say the captain. This is a compound Greek word, which means ruler and leader. In other words, he's saying the founder of our salvation, the one who rules over us and the one who leads us, the one who is a king to us, but the one who is a shepherd to us, the one who takes responsibility for us and the one who guides us, that he was perfected, it says, through suffering. 
Now, the minute you read that, you say, you mean there was a point at which Yeshua was not perfect? No, the word perfect here in the Greek means to bring to a point of conclusion, to bring to a goal. In other words, the goal that, you, that God had for Yeshua was that he would die for our sin. And that meant the goal for Yeshua was to suffer, that his suffering would be the means by which redemption would be provided. And so through suffering, Messiah completed his ministry. Does that make sense? So he says in verse 10, For it was fitting that the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist, that the Father would bring many sons to glory, and that he would make the ruler, the king and shepherd of the salvation of those many sons, he would make them perfect, or he would make the founder of those that would inherit that salvation, he would make that one that would provide us with salvation, fulfill that goal of enabling us to be saved and glorified by means of suffering, by means of giving up his life for us. As a consequence, the writer is saying, we need to listen to Yeshua. We need to hear his words because he's greater than the angels because of the depths to which he had to go in order to fulfill the goal that God had for him. Not merely to minister to those who would inherit salvation, but to provide the salvation that they would inherit. It's really a powerful, very powerful passage. And then he tells us four things about this one who would be the means by which we would experience the ultimate glorification. So let's go through them very quickly if we can. Look at verse 11 through 13. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, that is Messiah. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. So the first thing he does in this process of bringing us to glorification, the first thing he does by means of being that one who would be complete his goal through suffering is he would be the sanctifier of us is what he's saying. So in other words, he's describing Yeshua as the one who sanctifies. Now the word sanctify means to set apart. He has set us apart unto himself. And he has set us apart, not only positionally as ones who are children of God, sons of God is the term he uses here, but he also sets us apart actually as he makes us more and more holy, as he makes us more and more like his son. Sanctification has two aspects to it. There's that point in which he separates us from the world and unites us unto himself. But then he separates us from our sin and makes us more like himself. And that is the road that we are on to ultimate glorification. And because the one who sanctifies sets us apart and the one who experiences is united to him, he says we are one. That's why he meant, we read in the Gospel of John, the book of John, that his prayer is that we would be one even as he and the Father are one. And so we are united to him. And because we are united to him, and this is another great phrase, he's not ashamed. No matter what you have done, no matter what you have thought about, no matter what your motives have been, he's not ashamed to call you his brother or to call you his sister 
in himself. He's not ashamed to call us his brethren. And to demonstrate that this is so, he, he relates this to three passages in the Hebrew scriptures. So let me just share with them very quickly. He says, number one, that is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, because we're united to him despite our frailty. And look what he says. First of all, this is shown in the Hebrew scriptures because it says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. That's taken from Psalm 22. Now, Psalm 22 is one of the most important messianic passages in the scriptures. It opens up by saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a psalm that speaks of the death and suffering of Messiah, which suffering the writer has just made reference to. So now he looks to a passage that deals with the suffering of Messiah. But the suffering of Messiah is not the final, uh, the final goal of Messiah. Because out from his suffering, he would be resurrected and brought to life and given new life and to be ascended to the right hand of the Father. And so he says, as a result in Psalm 22, as a result of the suffering of Messiah, some of his brethren will trust in him for salvation. And therefore, he says, he's not ashamed to call them brethren. And the passage says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. These are those that have received salvation as a result of the work of Messiah. And they say, they shout out, I will tell of your name, the name of Messiah to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praises for what you have done. That's Psalm 22. But then he quotes from Isaiah the prophet. And he quotes from Isaiah chapter 8, verses 17 and 18. And he says, I will put my trust in him. Behold, I and the children God has given me. Now, we can't get into all the details, but this is Isaiah chapter 8. And chapter 8 is within a section of the book of Isaiah from chapter 7 to 12. And that's called the book of Emmanuel. Because in each chapter of Isaiah 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, Emmanuel is made reference to. So in Isaiah 7, 14, right? We all know the passage. The virgin shall give birth to a child and they shall call his name what? Emmanuel. In chapter 8, it speaks about the coming judgment on the land of Israel. But the judgment on the land of Israel will not destroy all of Israel because the land of Israel is the land of whom? Emmanuel. In Isaiah 9, 6, we learn of some other names that Emmanuel has. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And in chapters 10 and 11, 11, we light the candles, right? We recite that passage, that upon him shall rest the spirit of wisdom and counsel and might, and so on and so forth. And it's a reference to Emmanuel, upon whom the fullness of the Holy Spirit rests. And so what's neat about his quoting of this passage is if you look at Isaiah, uh, of this passage, it speaks, first of all, in verse 17, Isaiah is speaking, I will put my trust in him. I will put my trust in Emmanuel. And then in verse 8, behold, I and the children God has given me. So what we learn is that not all of Israel will embrace Emmanuel, only the children that God has given him. That's why he said earlier that he would be the founder. It says that he would bring many sons to glory. Notice it doesn't say he'll bring all sons to glory. Many sons. Because the sons he's referring to 
is the children of Israel. And not all of Israel are sons of God. Not all of Israel know God as Lord and Savior. Not all of Israel recognize Yeshua. That's why the prophets, Isaiah himself included, speaks of this faithful remnant. There's a small portion of the Jewish people who have been faithful to God. Elijah, for example, says to God, I'm the only one left. And God says, no, I have a remnant. And there were like 6,000 or 7,000 that had not bowed the knee to Baal out of the entirety of the nation of Israel. Paul in Romans 11 says, has God forsaken his people whom he has foreknown? May it never be. And he speaks of himself as a member of this faithful remnant. Jewish believers need to be exceedingly proud of their relationship with the Lord. They're members of a faithful remnant. They stand in contradistinction to the nation, which is predominantly made up of individuals who do not know the Lord. They may be very religious like the Pharisees, but they don't know him if they don't know the provision God has made for them. That's what Isaiah is saying. We need to recognize who Emmanuel is. And Isaiah says, you can count me in that I will put my trust in him. And he says there are many others among the children of Israel who have also and will also put their trust in him, but not all. Only many sons will be brought to glory. And therefore it behooves us to do the ministry of bringing the good news to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, that the remnant might be responsive and that more and more of our people will know him as Savior. Of course, when Messiah comes... It says, all Israel shall be saved. But that day has not happened yet. So right now, there's a faithful remnant that looks forward to that time when all Israel shall be saved. And when all Israel shall be saved is when the deliverer shall come from Zion and turn away all ungodliness from Jacob in Romans chapter 11. But this is already being taught by the writer to the Hebrews as well. And so he's saying, the one who sanctifies the people of Israel, separated Israel as a unique nation, he does a further sanctifying work in setting apart a faithful remnant from within the nation of Israel who are his brothers and who are his brethren and among whom he is not ashamed to call uh, his brothers. So the writer is saying he's greater than the angels. He's the one who sets us apart unto God and apart from our brethren. And then if you look at verse 14, he says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. So not only is he the sanctifier, He's also the one who's the conqueror of Satan. He's the conqueror of the evil one. Notice what he says here that's really quite interesting. First of all, it says that he shares in flesh and blood. You know, in the Greek, it actually says in blood and flesh. It's actually the other way around. Why most of the English translations always say flesh and blood? Maybe it's easier to read. I'm not sure. But technically, he really says, not that it changes its meaning, but it says blood and flesh. But the word to share is the word koinonia. It's the word for fellowship. And what he's saying is that he was 
fully embracing the same nature of humanity that you and I embrace. He, was, he joined with us. He fellowshiped with us as a human being. And so he shared with us our flesh and blood, or our blood and flesh, you might want to say. He fully became a man so that he might suffer and die. But then look at this. He says that he might destroy. You know, that word destroy is an important word. It's the word kartageo. It doesn't mean to eradicate. It means to render inoperative. Because he actually did not destroy the devil, right? He still is the prince of the power of the air. And he still tempts. In fact, Yeshua himself experienced temptation for 40 days by him. And we're still warned that the evil one goes about like a roaring lion seeking whomsoever he may devour. And we still experience death in our world, which is something that is an ex- ex- uh, an exhibits the power of the evil one. He did not destroy him yet. But he rendered him inoperative. For the believer, death is no longer something to be feared. It is a gateway into the presence of God. For the unbeliever, it is something to be feared. Because it is the gateway into alienation from him. And so what the writer is saying is he rendered it inoperative. It's the same word, by the way, that Paul uses regarding the relationship of the believer to the Mosaic law. Because Messiah has come, he has rendered it inoperative. We are no longer obligated to keep the law and we are no longer um, guilty before the law. and We no longer are judged by the law. Remember, Jewish people are guilty on two fronts. We are guilty because of our sin and we are guilty because of our failure to keep the law which was given to us. Yeshua, by fulfilling the law, fulfills the law so that those Jewish people who believe in him are no longer guilty of breaking the law. By taking upon himself all of our sin, he enables us to be guiltless of our own personal sin irrespective of the law. Yeshua had to provide redemption in two directions. He had to remove us who are prone to the curse of the law from being cursed by the law. That is not true of non-Jews, but that's true of Jews because that's to whom the law was given. And therefore, the curse of the law rests on Jewish people if they fail to obey it. And we all fail to obey it. So therefore, we're guilty of it. But the law was not given to non-Jews. But non-Jews are still guilty before God because of their sin against him. So Yeshua had to fulfill the law in order to remove the curse of the law that Jewish believers would be guilty of. He also had to be sinless in order to remove sin from all of us who are guilty of sin in one way or another. So what he said here is that he doesn't destroy the law. He renders it inoperative. It still teaches us. It still guides us. It still provides us with insight into the character of God. But we are no longer responsible to obey it as such. Because Yeshua has fulfilled it for us. That's what the writer is telling us. He is our fulfiller of the law. He has already sanctified us. So he's not only the sanctifier. 
He's the des- destroyer or the one who renders inoperative the power of the evil one. He no longer holds any sway over us. He can accuse us all day long, even as the scripture says. But we always have an advocate who is contending for us before the throne of grace. He has rendered his power toward us inoperative. But his power towards others is still very much in effect. And that's why it's so critical to recognize his superiority Not only over angels and the law and the high priest, but over our own lives. So that we recognize his superiority to us. And we say, Lord, I may not understand everything about you. None of us do. But Lord, I will, like Isaiah says, put my trust in you. And in putting our trust in him, he will carry us through. Not only is he our sanctifier, not only is he the one who has rendered inoperative the power of the evil one toward us, but look what else he says. In verse 16, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Now look at verse 16. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Isn't that, I just love the repetition of the word help. The word help is unique word. It, is a bigger, it has a bigger meaning than just the word help as such. What he means is, when you cry for help, he comes. He's the one that when we cry for help, he will come. And so he says, therefore he had to make, uh, or verse uh, 16, verse, I'm sorry, 16, for surely it's not to angels that he helps, he helps the offspring of Abraham. Notice that when Yeshua came into the world, he came into the world as a son of Abraham. He came into the world as a man, but he came into the world as a Jewish man. That's altogether critical for what we just said. He had to deliver the Jews from the curse of the law, in addition to the curse of sin. And so he comes into the world, not merely as a man, although that would be enough, but he comes into the world as a Jewish man. Now, that's the point of the writer to the Hebrews. He's the offspring of Abraham. To whom is the writer writing? He's writing to Jewish believers. He's telling them to go on in their walk to the Lord. Take note of the degree to which Messiah has gone in order to provide us with salvation and redemption. And so he says, first of all, he's the one who sets us apart. Second of all, he's the one who destroys the work of Satan. And thirdly, he's the one who offers himself a sacrifice for sin. Because he says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become merciful and faithful high priest. He wants to get to the point of being a high priest. So he's already introduced it to us in the service to God. Here's a key word to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Another important Greek word. We generally don't use this word propitiation. But it means to make satisfaction. He satisfies the wrath of God. He satisfies the wrath of God that's imbibed in the curse of the law. He satisfies the wrath of God in bringing judgment upon sin wherever it is found. He is our sacrifice. Now the imagery, and I'm going to close with this. The imagery that the writer is drawing our attention to is what 
the Mosaic law provided back in the Hebrew Scriptures. That Jewish people in the time of the Old Testament, and today, and all people, but we're focusing on the Jewish people for a moment, could get themselves into trouble in a variety of ways. One of the ways we could get ourselves into trouble is by incurring a debt we cannot repay. We had hurt something or destroyed somebody's field or destroyed somebody's cows or whatever, and we just don't have the resources to make payment for it. The debt is greater than what we can afford. So how do you pay off that debt? The Mosaic law provided two means. One was you would become the slave, the servant of that individual, that family, for a period of six years. And on the sabbatical year, you'd be released from your servitude. So you'd have to serve for six years. That would be one way you could pay off that debt. And if at the end of six years you said, you know, I really like this master and you wanted to stay in his indebtedness, you could have an earring put into your ear and you had, in effect, made a vow that you are going to continue to be a servant to this man and your family for the rest of your life. You had that option. If you found him to be a merciful, faithful, kindly master in the process. So if you couldn't pay off the debt, you could become the slave of the one that you were indebted to for six years, and then you'd be released on the seventh, a sabbatical year, or for the rest of your life if you so determined that because you found him to be good. There was another way to have your debt removed. Another way to have it removed was if you had a kinsman redeemer. We read about this in the book of Ruth. Boaz became a kinsman redeemer. A kinsman redeemer had to meet three criteria. He had to be a family member, number one. Couldn't be someone outside the family. Had to be a family member. Number two, he had to have the resources to pay off the debt. And number three, he had to be willing to pay off the debt. What the writer to the Hebrews is saying is our Messiah is superior to the angels, not only because he is God, Not only because in his humanity he provided us with redemption, but also because he has become our kinsman redeemer. He has become like one of us. He's become the offspring of Abraham. He's become fully human. He partook of flesh and blood. So he became family and therefore could intercede in our need. Secondly, he had to be able to pay off the debt. And he could pay off that debt because he fulfilled the law completely. I came not to destroy the law, but to fill it. Not one jot or tittle will pass from the law until all be fulfilled. He fulfilled all the law. Therefore, he had the resources to pay off the debt. And not only did he fulfill all the law, but he never sinned against God in any way, shape, or form. So he was the sinless son of God. And in being sinless, he had the resources to pay off sin wherever it is found. In whatever life is contaminated by it. Not only was he one who is made like us, whether we're Jewish or non-Jewish, flesh and blood or the offspring of Abraham. Not only did he have the resources, but it says he was willing to lay down his life for us. And so he says, no one takes my life. It's very important that he says that because he must give his life willingly. 
It cannot just be taken from him. He must give it up for those whose debt he would pay. And therefore on the cross and before the cross, he says, no man takes my life. I lay it down freely. And on the cross, it says, he yielded up his spirit. Even the acts of crucifixion did not kill him. Ultimately, it is he himself who wills the end of his life that we might benefit thereby. And so when the writer to the Hebrews, and this is what I want to leave you with and the worship team can come on up. What I want to leave you with are those two verses that I just read. In verse 16, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham because he himself has suffered when tempted. He is able to help those who are being challenged, tempted, lured into sin. When we cry out to him, he will answer us. When we cry out for his help, he will answer us. And so when I first was in investigating whether or not Yeshua is the Messiah, and I'm reading the scriptures. When I'm reading the scriptures, my friend said to me, while you are reading, make sure that you pray. And being one who was reared in an Orthodox Jewish home, the only way I knew how to pray was to open up the Siddur and start praying. And I didn't know where I should start in the Siddur. So I said, how am I supposed to pray? And he said, it's really not all that hard. You just need to say one thing. Yeshua, if you're real, show me and I'll believe if that is the desire of your heart. And so I'd say, Yeshua, I'd snuck the Bible home at night under my covers at night with a flashlight. I started with Matthew and I said, Yeshua, if you're real, show me and I'll believe. That's Isaiah. I will put my trust in him. So if you're here and you have never put your trust in him, you should. Because he's the only one that will provide you with the debt or the resources to pay off the debt to God that we all have. If you've never put your trust in him, you should, because he's the only one that can render inoperative the evil one's effect on your life that will ultimately lead not to life, no matter what you might otherwise hear, but to death. If you've never given your life to Messiah, and let me add, even if you have, but you have not devoted yourself to live for him. Remember, one of the other terms is to be religiously devoted to him. You should. Because of what Messiah has done for you in making you one of his brothers. We are ones that need to be right with God and we need to be serious about our relationship with him. This is an eternal manner and not just one for the moment. And so what is at stake? You know, it's amazing to think about is it. all of eternity. I saw a video with Francis Chan. He had one of these long ropes 
that kind of disappeared off stage. And he was standing on the stage and he had red tape on a small area of this rope that sort of dangled and looped around and continued off stage. You couldn't see it. He said, you know, we focus our attention. If you look at this rope, this rope is representative of your life. And we focus our attention on the 70 years here that we have when we have a whole eternity that this rope represents. And we think the choices we make are only for this moment when they are for all of this that is yet to be experienced and yet to be lived. The writer wants his readers to go on in their faithfulness to the Lord. And I would want all of you, myself included, as I speak to myself, I would want all of us to be as equally faithful in our own challenges that we face in our own day and age here and now. Because the same issues are at stake that were at stake for the readers of this great book. Do not miss out on Messiah. Do not miss out on the opportunity that he's presenting to you now and forever. So let's pray. Our God and Father, we are grateful for the wonderful grace that you have made possible to us. You are indeed a merciful and faithful high priest that when we cry out to you, you come. And so, Lord, I pray that we are even now crying out to you that you would come to us in our particular moment of need here and now. For some, it is a need to simply step over the line and say like Isaiah, I will put my trust in you. Wherever you lead and whatever it means, I'm ready to face that because you have done so much for us. For some of us who've known Messiah for a long, long time, we need to be just as serious with God, with you now, as we were then when we first invited you into our lives. And not to take anything for granted. And so we would pray, Lord, that you would do your work of sanctifying grace in us in a powerful way. That you would help us, Lord, in our battle with the enemy and not to give in to that one whose power has been rendered inoperative in our own day and age. And that, Father, we would devote ourselves to you because you have paid off our debt and we are full in full and we are free. And so, Lord, may our lives exhibit freedom in you as it ought. So in these moments as the worship team is playing, I want you to pray and to talk to the Lord just as I did years ago and said, if you're real, Lord Yeshua, show me. I will believe, but I need to be shown. I need to have my heart opened and my mind open to understand. And I need to live more faithfully than I did before. Help me to do that. So take a moment to commune with the Lord.
So, Father, I pray for our congregants here this morning. If there's anyone that's never invited you into their life, I pray, Lord, that you might help them. Even as your disciples pray, we believe, help our unbelief. Might you do that? For those, Father, who have made a decision in years gone by, but are in need of ongoing faithfulness to you, Father, may you take hold of our hearts and make us more devoted to you than we were before. Whatever the struggles, the suffering, the trials, the temptations, Father, may we fight through them. May we persevere in the midst of them. May we endure them and come out the other side whole, clean, and washed and pure. We give you all praise, honor, and glory, Lord. We worship you and we praise your name. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.